God has got great news for us, and I'm excited to get into it today um, as we go into the book of Ephesians. Uh, just, it's the right time. So the first thing that we want to do is we want to do our memory verse. It's Ephesians 2.10. This right here is good news, isn't it? For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, with God has prepared in advance for us to do. Wow, isn't that good? I think a lot of times in our life we wonder, do I have purpose? Why am I here? Does God have a plan for me? right? Or does he have good things for me? Do you ever felt like, you know, God maybe have made you only to suffer or to have bad things? That is not what the scripture says. Good works, he's prepared for you. You don't have to go looking for him. We have an amazing God, and we have an amazing future. We have purpose in our life today. And and so we're going to talk about today in the book of Ephesians, how do we connect with that? What does that mean? And it's just a, a wonderful thing. So if you have your Bible... You want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you, if you didn't bring your Bible today, don't worry. We've got a bunch of them. You can pick them up in the back. We've got that little library book thing. Um, you can grab one of ours. Um, and, and in our Bibles, it's page 815. Um, if you need a Bible, keep it. Just keep it. Just our gift to you. Um, just make sure you read it. It's good stuff. So as you're turning there, um, let me give you a little context. Maybe you missed last week or new with us. Um, we're going through the book of Ephesians. And uh, it's talking about how to build a community of grace. And uh, how Paul writes the book of Ephesians is, is there's two different movements in it. The very first thing he talks about is really what God has done for us. And so that's the first three chapters. What has God done for us? And then the second three chapters, and now since God has done these things for us, how do we live that out? It's, it's the great combination of how do we have a grace foundation for our faith, right? What has God done? And then how do we have, have a faithful life in Christ, and oftentimes as Christians and as a church, we've tried to separate the two and try to either live the Christian ex- uh, existence o- on one or the other, right? Either it's, I'm saved by God's grace through faith and that's it, so it doesn't matter what I do with the rest of my life, I can just live however I want. And, and a life that's, that's, that's founded in that kind of grace but has no expression to it is a very stifling, dead life. And we see Christians who try to live that way and, they, and, and their lives are uninspiring, and they do not touch the world, and they do not change the world for the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God hasn't touched and changed them the way that it ought to have. And yet we see other times where Christians try to build their life on just obedience, just raw obedience on all these things that we must do. And, and they try to be very, very good and moral and all this kind of stuff, but without the grace and understanding what God has done, their faith is joyless. It is really not attractive. And we look at them and, they, and we look at the impact they're making the kingdom. It's often a very negative impact for the kingdom, isn't it? become very judgmental, very, very stifled by their own faith, and it becomes very hard and, and exhausting. You know, God has something better for us, doesn't he? He wants us to put both of these together. We, if we were going to be the church, we're going to be the church that God called us to be. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus that truly make disciples, build those disciples for him, we have to have the whole gospel. We have to build our life on truth. And so what we have here, last week we talked about all these amazing things that God has given to us. Our riches, our wealth in Christ. And now Paul begins and he takes the next step and he says it's not just the possessions that you have in Christ, but it's also your position, who you are in God, that matters. And we all uh, um, understand this idea that position makes a difference. Possessions are nice. It's good to have things. It gives you power, the ability to do stuff. But position also gives us authority. That's why this election is coming up, right? That's why everyone like, wants to have this, these offices. It's not like the work of president, I'm sure, is so fun. It's that it comes with authority. It comes with power. Position matters. 
You see, the President of the United States, they don't only have power when they're sitting behind the desk in the Oval Office, right? If they're on an airplane, if they're in a coffee shop, it doesn't matter where they are, the President has power because of the position that they hold. The day before that person, that human becomes President, doesn't have the same amount of power, do they? They have all the same possessions, but they have a very limited amount of power. And the day after they step out of office, they have a limited amount of power, not nearly the same ability that they had whilst they had position. God has given us not just possessions in Christ, but he has given us position in Christ, which is amazing. And we're going to talk about that today and how that position changes us and how that position gives us the authority to change the world. It's great stuff. So hope that I gave you enough time to turn to Ephesians so we can get into it. All right, let's talk about our position in Christ. Chapter 2, the first thing Paul talks about is the transformation that takes place in every believer, every single one of us. And it's huge. We have to come to grips with this transformation so we know who now we are. And so the first thing he talks about, starting in verse 1 through 3, it's the bad news of who we were, right? Transformation is a change from something. What were we? It says, as for you, you were dead in transgressions and in sins, in which you used to live and follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdoms of the air and the spirits who is now at work and those who are disobedient. The all of us lived amongst them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And you say, Aaron, I thought this was good news. Well, if it stopped there, that would be bad news. But isn't it exactly what we see when we turn on the news? Isn't it exactly what we see when we look into culture? We see a world falling hopelessly into depravity. And the things that the people of this world go after to find their purpose in life, like they just want to have wealth, they just want to have pleasure, and all those things are the very things that end up killing us, don't they? But we don't have to look out there to recognize that. We can look into our own lives. By nature... We were drawn to that which destroyed us. And we became people without purpose, people without hope, people that are by nature objects of God's wrath. That's not a good future. That's who we all were. Very few times in my ministry and in my experience as a Christian have I come across somebody who has said to me, Aaron, I do not need Jesus because I am just good enough. Right? I don't need God I'm a, because they will say I'm a religious person. Right? So I do all the right things and I'm better than most people, so therefore I'm good with God and all that. That's happened a few times. I've heard of a couple of folks that have said that. That's not the majority, but it, there are some out there. I'll tell you what, the Pharisees were just like that. And they really were moral people. I mean, straight up, like superheroes of being able to uh, uh, apply the law to their life. And Jesus didn't have very kind things to say about that because... On the outside, it says they looked beautiful like a nice whitewashed tombstone. But on the inside, they was full of decay and depravity. All of us have fallen short. Every one of us sins, right? There is a brokenness that's deep in there. And so for those that think that maybe I'm good enough to be close to God on my own, the scriptures, they beckon us to take a real look at our life. And it's not to judge another person and say, you're not worthy. It's looking in my own life and recognizing the reality of, of, of who I am. I mean, compared to God, I mean, if God showed up right here right now and it was just me on my own, I would be a little bit nervous because I know what I've done. I know my thoughts. I know my impurities. I'm a sinner. 
But, you know, most people in this world that I've come across aren't about saying, well, I'm just good enough, I'm fine with God, I don't need it. Most of us in our life, in a Christian walk, start with this. We recognize what God has done for us, we don't own it. And in fact, what we do own is the dead person that we used to be. We say, I remember what I did. In fact, I still struggle with those things. And how could a loving, powerful, just God want a person like me? How could he use somebody as broken as I am? Have you ever felt that way? Right? You kind of feel like a phony when you begin having God's Holy Spirit work in your life and start to change you. And you start to live out this new walk. And you start to think, am I just putting on a show? You're not. God is changing you. But oftentimes what happens, the devil comes back and whispers in our ear and says, you can't be a person that God uses because look at who you were. Well, I've got good news for you. God doesn't call you out because of who you were. He calls you out because of who you are. And it's an amazing thing. So there was this point in our, in our life, in our faith, where we were broken. Every person was broken. Now here's one of those times in Scripture where we're so happy that, that there's a turnaround. There's a 180 that takes place. We were dead, and there was bad stuff. And then we get there to verse 4, and it says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved. Not those words wash over you. Did, it's nothing that you did. It's grace. Now there's two things that we find in there. Mercy says God who is rich in mercy. Mercy is, is not giving somebody the punishment they deserve. Grace is giving them a blessing they don't deserve. God has given us both. That's amazing. That's his motivation was that he loved you. He cared for you when you didn't. Now, now to make that even more amazing is get this he says well while we were dead in our transgressions dead think about dead things what can a dead person do nothing on their own right absolutely nothing they they will eventually decay but they can do nothing to help themselves they can do nothing to direct their life they are absolutely without a power or ability to do anything right they're dead there are three people in the gospels who were raised from the dead by christ Okay? There was this girl, this young girl, who died in, in an upper room in her, in her parents' house, and when Jesus got there, she was fresh dead, right? Like, she was so freshly dead that then when, when Jesus raised her from the dead, a lot of people were like, oh, she must have been taking a nap, right? That's how fresh dead she was. Everything else, she, her body still felt warm, all that kind of stuff, but she was still dead. Then there was a guy who was carried out out of town, right? The second one was a, a young man, and he was a little bit longer dead. Okay? He was long enough dead, his body was cold and all that stuff. He was wrapped up and all that, and they were carrying him outside of town to bury him. Everybody knew he was dead, right? He felt dead. It was very obvious he was dead, but he didn't stink yet. Right? And then there was Lazarus, who was not fresh dead. He was four days dead. He was like, dead, right? Stinky, stinky dead. All of them equally unable to do anything, correct? The only difference between the three was the state of their decomposition. Like, uh, Monty Python, you ever watch that Holy Grail? Okay, so, no, I'm, not, I'm, not off, I'm not saying that's a great show. But anyway, they got it wrong. There's no such thing as mostly dead. You're either dead or you ain't dead. When you're dead, you can't do anything. Now, in, in our world, we look at people, and some people look like they have it more together. There might be like a very moral person that's living outside, away from God, and there might be somebody who's living on skid row and, and their life stinks, right? The only difference between the two is the state of decomposition. They are all dead. 
And whilst they were dead, they were unable to do anything on their own. While we were dead in our sins and our transgressions, doesn't matter how stinky or fresh dead we looked, we were dead in our transgressions, and while we were unable to save ourselves, God, out of his love for us, saved us. Just like Jesus came in and rose those people from the grave. Not one of them asked him to say, hey, could you do this for me? Jesus said, I'm going to make it possible to make it for you to come alive. They didn't deserve it. None of them turned their life around. It wasn't like, you know, Lazarus was like, well, I'm going to start eating better now that I'm dead. Maybe then I can deserve to live again. No, it wasn't like that. None of them had any change in their life because they were dead. And Jesus came and gave them the ability for life. That is power. That's an amazing thing. God is the one who makes a transformation in a Christian's life. It is not you, it is God. It is by grace you have been saved. Again, it says, through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Isn't that good news? Right? Can you imagine how miserable heaven would be if everyone could boast about how good they were? It would be like a one-up club forever. Forever. That's not heaven. When we get there, we have this amazing time to be able to say, man, look what God has done. Look what he made us into. We didn't deserve it, but he did it anyway. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And maybe there are some here this morning that have been seeking after God hard their whole life and wondered how come I can't get close to him. I'll tell you this, it's because it's not up to you to have to get close to God. God's come close to you. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourself. You don't have to strive for it. When I was a young man and I was seeking about the different religions and I, and I looked at the five world major religions and I sought them out and I researched them and I studied them and one thing that caught me about Christianity was this. It's not about what I have to do anymore. It's about what has been done. And it was, uh, there's so much peace in that because it's very nebulous in every other religion how much is enough. When do I know I've done enough? We don't know. It's very subjective. But it's a very objective thing that Jesus came and he actually objectively died on a cross. He objectively fulfilled 300 prophecies that were written thousands, hundreds of years before he was born. It was a very objective, real thing that he actually rose again. Historical evidence is there. He rose again from the grave. It's very objective. What he said is that it is finished. He's paid the price. Jesus is the one. Christ has done what we could not do while we were dead. He has done what was necessary to make us alive. And that is what it says here. Now that Christ has done this, we were dead, but by grace we could be saved. Look at what it says. He didn't just save us. Verse 10, it says, and I hope that you remember this verse, because I don't know, we kind of memorized it a couple minutes ago. It says, for we are God's handiwork. You haven't just been saved. You are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God didn't just save you. You're not just like some refugee off of, you know, Death Island. Right? And God says, oh, I saved you. That's fine. Okay, go figure it out. Go have a good life. He crafted you from before you were born. Do you hear that? Before you were born, he started working in your life. He made a purpose for you. Everything with this series before this called Shape. It's how God has been in our lives shaping you. He's been preparing this world for you and you for this world since its conception. And what did he make you to do? You are, his, you are his creature that he's made to do good works. God designed you to do great things. I mean, you look into your house, and there are items in your house, some of which have more enviable jobs. They can do better things. Like, I've got this, uh, this TV that I watched, the Denver Broncos, which normally is a good thing, except for the last two weeks, right? But generally, that is a very, and it's got a, a nice place on my wall of, of reverence, 
right? It's there. It's there for something. I don't use it to scrape the snow off of my deck, right? It's got, it's holy. It's got good work that it's prepared for. And I've got, in my bathroom, I've got a plunger. And it's not so much prepared for great noble things, right? God has prepared you for noble things. He's prepared you for good works from the very beginning. That's how he designed you for. He made you for good works, but didn't just make you for good works. He's designed the works themselves and brought them to you. You don't have to wander through life saying, I hope I find my purpose. Boom, your purpose finds you. Because God's made them in advance for you to do. The question is, are you going to do them? But we have to understand our position in God is he's made us objects to do great things. It is a lie of the devil that any one of you is a mistake. Any one of you here that God has saved doesn't have good work for you. He doesn't have a purpose in your life. That is a lie. He has powerful things for us to do. Powerful things for us to do because he's made us something powerful. We were sinners, now we are saints. We were broken, and now we are made perfect, right? We were objects of wrath, now we are objects of grace and love right? We were destined for destruction. Now we were destined for glory. Do you see this? Isn't that good news? That is amazing stuff. Now Paul talks that and he says, all right, because this is who we are, he's going to share with us amazing mystery of God that has baffled people since the very beginning of time. And we are the ones that get to find out about it. And it's this, how do we have in position us Jews and Gentiles? How do we have connection with God? right? There are two different groups, right? In scripture, we read in the Old Covenant and all this, this. And those of us who sit far away, and most of us are Gentiles, and we don't really think about it so much. But I'll tell you what, if you were a believer in the early century church, this is a big deal. And we'll, so since we don't have that, uh, that history or all that kind of stuff, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a Jew? What does it mean to not be a Jew? In the Old Testament, there were five different covenants. God made a covenant with Adam and Eve, he made a covenant with Noah and his family. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant there with Moses. And he made a covenant with David. Okay? Each one of these covenants in the Old Testament, we would say, which one of those people were the, were the Jewish people? Right? Because there are five different covenants that God makes. Right? And so we're going to say, who are the Jews? We've got to figure out which covenant we're talking about. If there are people of the covenant, which covenant? Well, we see that Adam and Eve, God made a covenant with them that said, listen, you've sinned but I'm not rejecting it. There's going to be a human that's going to be born that's going to crush Satan and what he's done, and it's going to bruise that person's heel, right? That, the Savior's heel is going to get wounded, but he's not going to be destroyed, but he will destroy wickedness. The Savior is coming, right? And then through Noah, right? When God destroyed the world with the flood and saves Noah, comes off the ark, the, the rainbow, there's a covenant. I'm not going to destroy the world with water anymore, but next time I'm going to do it with fire, so there, that's something to look forward to. And, uh, <laughs> but in that covenant, there were some other things. It says, there was a promise of redemption. There was going to be a Messiah. There's somebody who's going to come and make things right. Right? And so Adam and Eve are going to have a child from there. They're going to come from them. That was going to have the Savior. Noah now gets that. That was pretty easy to decipher because he's the last human family left alive there at the time. But on that, he also adds this other thing that human life requires, uh, or human sin requires uh, a human life to make up for it. There was this equitable thing that God begins to show in the, co- in the covenant he makes with Noah. So you couldn't just have an animal pay a sin price for a human. That's what we get with Noah. It's pretty cool stuff. Then with Abraham, God's saying, listen, that Messiah that you're waiting for that's going to come, he's going to come through you. You're going to be a very special family. You're going to be a nation, in fact. And out of that nation, the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to be a blessing to everyone in this world, but it's going to come through you, Abraham. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you the Messiah, right? So now we know where to look for. And nobody else's family the Messiah is going to come through. It's going to come through Abraham. Moses had the next thing. 
Moses, God shows up and says, all right, I'm going to give you the law. Now you're going to understand this concept of sacrificial atonement, where if you're guilty and, and you've done something wrong, and there's something innocent that can pay the price for that. So if we take an innocent lamb and kill it for your sins, that uh, righteousness will be, will be brought to you, right? And your, gin gets, or your sin gets brought over onto that, the, guilt, the innocent thing. So it's a swap, right? So he shows us that. He also shows us, okay, there's different things. If you want to be in part of God's kingdom, there's a different way of living, right? So he gives them the, these, this covenant, the Mosaic law. And then through David, he gives another covenant. He says, listen, King David, uh, there's going to be that Messiah. It's not going to come not just through Abraham. It's going to come through your kids. Eventually, one of them is going to be the Messiah, that, that the one that's going to save. But not only this, but he's also he's not just going to be a savior, but he's going to be a king, which means he's going to live forever, which means that he's not just a human. So we have all of these covenants that we have made. Which one are the Jews? Well, if we look at the covenants, we see that each covenant builds upon the last. Adam and Eve are going to have a human that's going to save. Through Noah, we're going to have a human that's going to save through them. Right Through Abraham, it's going to be one of his descendants that's going to save. Through Moses, it's going to be through sacrificial atonement. Through David, he's also going to be king. Right, He's going to live forever. Each one of those was not a new covenant of themselves. They were each building upon themselves. Do you see that? Uh, Noah didn't complete, didn't fulfill Adam and Eve's, the covenant God made with Adam and Eve, did he? Was Satan's head crushed by Noah? No, not by a long shot. See, Noah, what God, the covenant God made with Noah only added to the covenant he made with Adam and Eve. And it was the same thing with Abraham. Did Abraham fulfill the covenant through Noah? Did did Abraham fulfill the covenant that God made with, with Adam and Eve? No, he just added to it. He said, that same Messiah that I promised before, now you know a little more about him. This is where he's going to come from. How about through Moses? Was there, was there something, a new covenant that was made? No, it was a continuation of the covenant that God started with Adam and Eve. And it was the same thing with David. It wasn't a new Messiah, somebody different. David didn't fulfill any of those covenants before. He wasn't the Messiah himself. Nothing had been fulfilled yet, but every single one of those, God was working through and he said, you know what? Every one of these, there's a covenant I made with humanity. There's a Savior that's coming. And every one of them was pointing towards something in advance. But none of those covenants were a fulfillment of the one that came before. That's why we say all of those together are part of the old covenant. Okay? They're all part of the same covenant. And all of them pointed to one place, and that was the Messiah, who was Jesus. Jesus fulfilled those covenants. Every one of them pointed to the life, the ministry, and the work of Christ. Every one of them then was part of that covenant. And because they were all part of those old, that old covenant, we would say that all of them were basically the same people. They were all the people of the covenant. So if you ask a Jewish person, hey, is, uh, when, when did the, the Jewish faith begin? They would say Adam and Eve, right? The very beginning, Right? It was the same God. So they would say, Adam and Eve, they would say, are they Jews? Yes, they would say they were. Or no, would they be considered a Jew? Yes, they were. They were definitely not Gentile. Right? They're in their part of the covenant. All the way through, we have all of them being part of the same covenant, same people. So we have the people of God, the Jews of Israel, they, and the part of being the people of God is you have access to God. They had access to God by grace through faith because of what God was going to do in Jesus that says by faith that they were all saved. They have access back to God to have some really great things. So they could pray, they could talk to God, they could have purpose in life. Well, there was another group of people that, sprout, that came up um, that were not part of that. And it really happened racially after Abraham, didn't it? 
Because after Abraham, you couldn't be part of God's people if you weren't part of Abraham's family. So now you have a different type of person that is born, a Gentile. And, and this, you have these Gentiles who are now separated from God. We can't have access to God anymore because we're not part of God's covenant people. And it's a hard place to be. Now, God, out of mercy, made a way that if you wanted to get into the covenant, you could become Jewish. But you had to stop being who you were, and then you had to become Jewish, and then you had to live according to that covenant then to have access to God. But there was a gulf now between most of humanity and God and his grace. This is what's so amazing about what happened in Christ, is that when Christ came, he did something that we could not do, and he did this. He brought in a new covenant. See, he fulfilled the old covenant. He didn't just do away with it. He fulfilled it. It's like this. When you go to your cell phone carrier and you get a new phone, you get a covenant with them, right? You're going to stay with them for a certain period of time, right? Otherwise, you've got to pay a certain amount of money for your phone. So you do this. You are, have a covenant relationship, and you have to fulfill that relationship, don't you? But then after like two years and the relationship is fulfilled, right? The covenant has been fulfilled, right? It's done. So if you decide to switch carriers, they can't punish you anymore, right? You fulfilled your portion of it. But you can still enjoy the benefits of that covenant. You don't have to switch carriers and you can keep your phone, right? You still have the residual benefits of that covenant. But the covenant has been fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. All of the benefits are still there, but he fulfilled it. The, the Messiah, the Savior came. He destroyed the devil. He did all these great things. He offered grace and peace and all that kind of stuff. He is the king that lives forever. He rose again. And now he offers us a new way to connect to God. Which is really great if you're uh, a Jew because you, everything that you've been hoping for for thousands of years, looking forward, God actually has done. Right? You get to see it happen. You're like, oh, the Messiah has come. So the Jews have natural access to God. It makes sense. It is their Messiah. It is their prophets. It is all of their stuff, right? It just makes sense. They would have an easy way looking at it. But here's something amazing that God has done. It now allows Gentiles to have access to God. In the New Covenant, for the first time, and for thousands of years, those who were outsiders now have access to God. Now think how amazing this is. That there is no longer a, a barrier between us as humans and now God. There is a new way to connect with Him. And it blew the minds of the church when it first happened, didn't it? Like Peter, after, you know, it's Pentecost and all that, and, and, and the early church was Jewish, right? The, the 12 disciples were Jewish guys, you know, and, to surprise you, but they were like Jesus. And, and the Pentecost would happen in Jerusalem and there's a bunch of Jewish people that were there and it spread throughout the world to all the Jewish brothers and sisters. They got to learn about Jesus and their Messiah and they got all excited about this. And then God did something really crazy that no one saw coming. It's Peter was at a buddy's house one day and God says, hey, come up to the roof. I'm going to have a picnic with you. You're going to have a BLT, right? You're going to sit down and I'll tell you what, eat this because I'm, I'm letting you know uh, you're going to go talk to this guy named Cornelius pretty soon, and he's a Gentile, and he's a soldier Gentile, but he also loves me, and you're going to tell him about Jesus, the Messiah, and, and he's going to be one of your brothers in, in Christ. And Peter's like, oh, I'm going to do that. And, and Jesus says, no, no, try the snake. It's really good. And, uh, and go on up there, and you can, uh, you can tell him about it. And what happens is that at Cornelius' house, the very same move of God that happened at Pentecost, happened in Cornelius' house. The Holy Spirit filled them, little tongues of flame, right, that. They're able to talk in different languages that they hadn't studied, all kinds of cool stuff. 
God showed that he had now accepted the Gentiles, which is really phenomenal news for someone like me, right? Because I have, you know, certainly wasn't Jewish by birth. And it was an amazing thing. The church wrestled this. What do we do with this? Do we now mean to make Gentile people Jews? Do they have to become circumcised and eat all according to our laws and all this? And church council all got together and they prayed about it and God gave wisdom and it says, no, they don't. You are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. You can be part of God's people. That is amazing, right? And so everybody up to this point, this near the end of, of Paul's ministry had accepted of this. Now, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God uh, reveals then the amazing portion of, of this word, which is actually even better than this. He shows us that we haven't just, there's not just two different segments, but we've been grafted together. There is a new way to be human. It's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, right? There's a new way that we have access to God. And it's not that the church replaced Israel, it's the church got grafted into God's people. Which means this, that all the promises of God that came before are now ours. It is the same Messiah that we look forward to and now saves us. But it also means this, that in heaven, there's not a wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. There's not like, you know, the uptown heaven and downtown heaven and the Jews get, you know, it's not the way that it works. Now, this is all very controversial theology and it has been for thousands of years. Why? Well, Paul talks about it. Verses 11 through 13. So you know I'm not just making it up. It says, uh, therefore, remember, formerly you who were Gentiles by birth. Remember, he says formerly. I love that. And were called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ and excluded from citizenship in Israel and were foreigners to the covenants of promises without hope and without God in this world. That's where we were. As Gentiles, we had no access to God. None. Without hope. Can you imagine living in a world, doesn't matter what you do, you are dead. Formally, that's what we were. And we're dead not just because of our sins. We were dead because of our sins, but we had no hope of grace because of, of our relationship. Because of our, the fact that we were Gentiles and not Jewish. Formally, that's where we were. But it says this. But now, verse 13, in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's when it says the Gentiles could now be part of, of the kingdom. But it goes on. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, dividing the wall of hostility. That's what it means. This is not that there is Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. There are believers. There are people in God's kingdom. That's what we are. And how did he do it? Verse 15, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and its regulations. How did he do that? Well, he paid the penalty. That's how we set those things aside. He didn't sweep anything under the rug. He said, you know what? God is a righteous God. And if you want to be saved, your sins have to be dealt with. And so he paid the price. He dealt with it. He completed the covenant. And then it says, his purpose in this was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God in the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This was God's plan all along. He wanted to bring us together with him and to bring us together with each other. And that's why it says in the very next verse, he came and he preached peace to you who were far away. That's us Gentiles. Peace to you who were near. Those are the Jews. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. 
And then it says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but now fellow citizens. Look what he's done for us. He's made peace. He did for us an amazing thing. Isn't that awesome news? That now we are one in Christ. We have access to God. Now, think how amazing this is. The first thing he says we've done for us is now he has made us something really, really cool. As we, we are now part of his kingdom. Right? We're citizens. And for a Jewish person, that meant a big deal. Right? And for a Gentile person in a Roman city, see, that made a big deal. Because if you were a citizen, you had rights that you didn't have. You were not a citizen. If you weren't a citizen and they arrested you, the very first thing they were going to do is whip you and beat you until they got you to confess to something you may or may not have done. Right? They could take away your property at any time. They could, they could seize it, whatever you want. Because you didn't have position in the society. And God says right here that in Christ, those of us, even though we were far away, even though we were once dead, we are now citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. There are rights that we have as God's children, right? As God's his citizens of his kingdom. That is pretty cool. But not only that, he goes on and he says, therefore, uh, not only there's new humanity that is formed with that, but in this, we don't only have, uh, we're not just part of his, his citizens of his kingdom, but we're also, we're family. He says that he's built us into his household. And think about this. There's a difference between being part of society and being part of a household, isn't there? Like, uh, think of Thanksgiving, right? Everyone in our nation, we, we all kind of do the same thing. We all have the same kind of meal, right? We, we make a big turkey and all that kind of stuff, but everyone celebrates together in their own house, Right? We're all kind of in it together, but we're also, you don't invite everybody over. But if you're in the same family, you go and you celebrate together. There's an intimacy that God steps up. He doesn't just say, hey, listen, you're part of my kingdom, which is great enough. The fact that we could even be part of God's kingdom is phenomenal. But the fact is, he says, you're not just part of my kingdom, you're part of my family. That is an amazing thing. I want you to be with me. We want to have relationship he calls you his sons and daughters, which means that you don't only have the rights as far as being part of a, the citizenship in God's kingdom, but you have the rights of being part of his royal family, which is awesome. Because most of us weren't born into a royal family. It's a pretty great thing. God has done this for us in Christ. But if that wasn't enough, look what else he does for us in there. It's not just that we have been part of this royal priesthood and this royal family, but it says this, uh, but we are fellow citizens of God's people and also members of his household. And look at verse 20. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. God's making us into something he calls a living temple. And you are an equal part of that with the prophets and the apostles. They prepared the foundation. They aren't the foundation. Jesus is the foundation. He's the cornerstone and the foundation. But they prepared it so we would know where it was supposed to be. But he's building you into his kingdom. Think of that. You might feel worthless. You might look at your life and say, I don't see the purpose of this. But God made you for something awesome. And not only that, he's making you into something awesome. Now, what is the job of a temple? Well, it's the place for people to bring brings worship and glory to, to God. It's a place that brings people together, closer to God. But it's also a place where the Spirit of God, God himself, rests. Where he exists. And where people can meet with him. Now think of this. The people that were Jewish, that were Christians, would understand this idea of a temple, right? Because they had a temple in Jerusalem they could go and look at. And they were like, God's presence right there, right? But the people in Ephesus, they also had an idea because one of the seven wonders of the world was the temple to Diana, which was there. 
And they would know, like, a temple is an amazing thing. It's not like some little, you know, shack out in the middle of the woods. It's just a beautiful, awesome thing, and to be part of that, it's holy and it's special, and the purpose of a temple is to be a magnet, to draw people closer to God and to radiate God's glory out and to house the fullness of God within. That's what you are. You thought of that. But it's not just you as an individual. It's us. You said that we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't that amazing? And we were in this together. God is, his, his spirit is, is alive and is well in this fellowship, in this church. God is here. And we have a wonderful opportunity and responsibility to draw people as a magnet to God, to glorify him, to radiate his glory out and to house his presence within us. That's one of the reasons why fellowship is so important. You are his temple. And we get to be built in that same temple along with equal part with the prophets and the apostles and those that came before. Isn't that amazing? You are no small thing. You are the temple of God. Mm. So what do we do with this? Well, Paul says we need to pray. Because here we have this idea of who we are, and that's great in theology, right? Don't you love it when God's word says something, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. That's like, I can totally accept that. Then it comes into your own life, and you're like, but how on earth did that ma- How I'm in God's temple. I'm supposed to like stand here? And like, like, what do I do? We need to begin to be able to practice the truth of our faith. And it's a hard thing to do. And so what does Paul do before he gets to what, how do we practice our faith? He stops right there. He begins to make the transition of what God has given us. He's given us all things. He's given us amazing position, right? We've got great authority. Before he tells us what we're supposed to do, he stops, he pauses, and he gives us a whole chapter where he prays for us. Now, the first part of that chapter, chapter 3, you get there, the first like 13 verses, he's, he's talking about what a big deal this is, right? That what we are is something that, that no one expected, Right? He even says in there that, that we have this, uh, these unsearchable riches in Christ. The, the Greek literally means it's untraceable. Right? It means that if you look in the Old Covenant, you look in the Old Testament, you will never find anywhere in there that will let you know that God was going to take the Jews and the Gentiles and make us into one people. You won't find it. Right? It's not contradictory to what's in the Old Testament. It was hidden. It's certainly aligned with everything that's in there, but it wasn't there. Why? Well, the devil knows the Bible a lot better than you do. And isn't it cool that the devil put Jesus on the cross not knowing that he was signing his own death warrant? Right? It was hidden. That's why God had to give Paul, he says, a special dispensation or a special message for the church so that way now we'd be made aware of what God has done in us, the position that he has given us in Christ. You have full authority to go and to be the temple of God because that's who he made you to be. You don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to change anything. You are the people of God. That's a mystery that even the angels themselves, they are discovering truths about God's grace that, that just blew their minds. They had no idea about it, right? They're like, what? When they look at the church, it's like, I did not see that coming. That's you. Isn't that awesome? So then he prays for us after he talks about what an amazing thing in this, starting in verse uh, 14. His prayer a couple things he prays for us. First one is that we'd be strengthened in Christ. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed... Oh, wait, that's... Yep. I got the wrong one. Here, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. 
And I pray that out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being. He's praying that we're going to be strengthened in Christ. And notice how he prays that we'll be strengthened in the inner being. A lot of times we as a church, we pray that God is going to strengthen us by changing our circumstances. Right? Make my life easier, God, then I'll shine brighter for you. Right? That's not how God works. He overcomes the world by overcoming the world. He's going to make himself greater in you. He doesn't always take away the mountains that were before us, but he gives us the strength to overcome them, right? So oftentimes we pray in the midst of our trial and our, and our, and our pain, we say, God, take away this, this trial, and God says, I'll do one better. I'm going to make you bigger than it. I'm going to overcome it through you. Because what would happen if he just took away all of our troubles in our life and he didn't change us, we would live in fear of the trouble for the rest of our life, wouldn't we? But when he comes alive in us, we overcome these things and we are no longer slaves to fear. Isn't that amazing? So if you are in the midst of a trial right now and you're in the midst of a struggle, God has not abandoned you, but you have to pray that he strengthens you because it is bigger than you. But it's not bigger than him. And he will strengthen you from the inner being and he will transform you so you can transform the world. How cool is that? The next thing he prays for us, I love this, is that we'll be rooted in love. And... Uh, He says this, that uh, I also pray for you being rooted and established in love that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. To be rooted, we have an idea because we have trees here, right? When the wind blows, trees don't just like topple over. Why? Because they've got roots that hold them down, right? It holds them firm. It tells us in the scripture we need to pray that we don't just accept God's love and have a very shallow faith, that we need to be rooted into it. It's what holds us and anchors us. And what is our roots supposed to be in? It's supposed to be in God's love, what he has done for us. You understand that everything that happens next in this, in this book talks about how we're to live a life of obedience to God and to have God's world come into us. If we're not rooted in God's love, it's gonna, that, that burden is going to be too much. It's going to knock us over. We have to recognize that we, the only reason we can even stand here is because of what God has done for us. And we also recognize that when God does, when he calls us to difficult things, that he's strengthening us because he loves us, right? So in our world, when we, stri- when we have difficulties and trials and troubles and all these things, when we're rooted in God's love, we don't say to God, why have you abandoned me? We say, God, help me and know that he's there. I love that being rooted in his love means this. A lot of times we as Christians, we want to enjoy the blessings of the fruits of the Spirit, without being rooted in the things of the Spirit. We need to start by setting our roots in the things of the Spirit so we have stability, so we can grow the fruits of the Spirit. Be rooted. And he prays that we would be. Next thing he asks is that we would be unified in truth, that out of that love we'll be unified. Isn't it important for us to know that none of us Christians are better than any other Christian, that we're all here basically what Jesus has done? And if God loves some other brother and sister in Christ, then I should probably love them too. Who am I to reject the people that God has accepted? We're going to be unified in truth. We understand the reality of reality. And if God loves us, other brothers and sisters, then I'm supposed to love them too. And the next thing he prays for us then is that we want to be filled with God. He says in verse 19 that you'll be able to know that surpassing, that, uh, that a love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the full measure of all of the fullness of God. Think of how amazing that is. You ever feel like you have an empty life? God fills you. There's a purpose that he has for you. He's designed you since the very beginning. You were his craftsmanship. He has actually brought us together, created a whole new kind of human 
so that we could do amazing things that have never been seen before. Even the angels are amazed at this and look at it in wonder and awe. And you are part of that. You are part of his temple and he is building you into his, his holy temple to draw people to him and to radiate his glory and to house his presence. How cool is that? So, based upon everything that we've seen in God, all that he's given us and who he has made us to be, as Christians, do we have a place of despair? No. No. I don't care who's elected. I know who's my king. Right? I don't care what happens in the future because I know who holds the future. And he's the God who's prepared good works in advance for us to do. He is just as sovereign tomorrow as he is today. And he's in you just as much as he's ever been in any place in the past. And he's never going to abandon you in the future. So what do we do about that? That's what he talks about the next few weeks. How do we live this new life, this new way to be human? I hope you come back for it. But before we do some work for you this week, if you take out that connection card, have some challenges. Because the last thing we want to do is go to God's word and then not have it come part of our life. Let it seep into you. So take out your connection card. On the back side, you'll notice there's a box here that says, this week I commit to. And it's important for us to make commitments, to be able to say to God, I'm going to do something. Because you might be like me, who's a procrastinator. And if I always say, hey, I'll connect with God tomorrow, tomorrow doesn't always happen. So let's do something this week. First thing I'm going to challenge you to do is why don't you memorize Ephesians 2.10? Why? Because you need to know who you are. Because the devil, this world, and your old sinful flesh are going to tell you that you're worthless. God says that you are valuable. God says that you're his workmanship. You have to believe either God or you have to believe anything else. I'm challenging to believe the one who makes truth when he speaks it. Trust God. If he says you're, in craft, his, you're his craftsmanship, trust him. Make this part of your life. Have this verse so much part of your life when the lie comes in, you can remember this and understand what it says so you can then not be hamstrung by the lies of the past. Memorize this. Maybe the next thing you want to do is you want to read Ephesians. I wouldn't challenge you to do this. I hopefully did a decent job preaching it, but what I want you to do is I want you to read it yourself. Let God's word do its own work in your heart. Read what it actually says for yourself. Get there. If you need a Bible, take one of ours. Read what it says in Ephesians 2 and 3. Think about what it says. How does it apply to your life? Or how about this? Maybe you need to pray for enablement. Just like Paul prays for enablement for us, that we would be in, that by, based upon the truth of what God has given us and who we are, we'll be able to live according to what he wants us to do. Pray that God will help you do that. Maybe the last thing you can do is pray to be rooted. Be rooted in his love. Right? It's hard to live the Christian life if we're not connected to the God who gives us the strength to do it, Right? For us, if we want to have the fruits of the Spirit, let's be rooted in the things of the Spirit. Let's remind ourselves of truth. Let's remind ourselves of who God is and what he, how much he loves us. I tell you what, it's a lot easier to forgive somebody who wrongs me when I remember how much God has forgiven me. Right? It's so much easier not to be pessimistic about my, the short-term future when I remember how optimistic our long-term future is, thanks be to God. Right? It's so much easier to remember to handle the anxieties of the day if I remember God's love and his presence in my life, isn't it? Maybe for you is to say, you know what, this week, when I, when I become anxious, when I become bitter, when I become uh, afraid, I'm going to remember what God has done and how much he loves me and what he's called me to. I'm going to be rooted in that love and just connecting it. Maybe that's what your challenge is. Or maybe for you, Maybe if you've never accepted Jesus as your own Lord and Savior, you haven't come to that point where you said, I want to join that kingdom. You don't even, maybe you, don't even, you know what that means, but you're interested. These promises can be yours too. 
and I would love to talk to you about it. it, it and so over on this other side, it said, I'd like more information about starting a relationship with Jesus. Let me know that. Make sure I have your contact information. We'll meet together this week. I'll hear your questions. We'll answer them. We'll talk about what does it mean to be a follower of Christ. If, if, if and when you're ready, we'll help you take those steps of faith, and so you can begin living in this whole new life that God has for us. Um, so that'd be a good thing. Also, if you have a prayer request, this is a great time to write that down because we'll be taking our offering in just a minute. And as we take our offering, I'd ask that you take these connection cards and that you'd drop them in the offering basket. Uh, make that an offering of yourself to God. So, um, so if we, as we do that, if we prepare for that, if you wouldn't mind, let's uh, pray for our offerings and for our, our commitments. Let's go to God. Heavenly Father, thank you for you. Thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you for the way that you've given us purpose and, 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 and uh, hope in this life. Thank you for good news, Lord. <laughs> Sometimes this world gets so heavy. It's nice to remember the reality that you are in control and you are still at work and you're doing great things and you still have purpose in our lives. So, Father, help us to be a church that's faithful to that. Help us to live up to that which we've already attained, Father. Let us live with joy in this world as your ambassadors. Let us draw people to you, Father, as we radiate your glory in this community, Father, as, as your temple. And, Lord, as we do that, I pray, Father, that you would help us to be a church that is deeply rooted in the love of God that we remember what Christ has done for us and that itself would help change us through our hearts to, and to strengthen us in the inner being to be able to love this world around us that doesn't always deserve love, but Father who desperately needs it. So let us be those agents that work in your kingdom, for your kingdom, as your kingdom. Father, for the commitments that are being made now, help us to keep those with joy. Change us in the midst of these, Father. Uh, empower these, our acts of faithfulness to do good things. And Father, I pray as well f- uh, for the offerings that are gonna be made. Lord, thank you that uh, you always give us what we need. And so, Father, even in the midst of, of uncertainty in life, we are glad to always give back to you, knowing that our sufficiency is in you, our hope is in you, our trust in you is in you, our security is in you. So, Father, take these gifts. I pray, Father, that you would build them, use them to build your kingdom in our hearts, in this church, in this community. We ask that in the wonderful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.